If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Ezekiel. Book of Ezekiel. We are rolling along through Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is, um, there's really three parts to the book. Um, I may have told you all this before, I don't know, um, because to be completely honest with you, I have a lot of things that I want to say, but I don't know if I actually say them or not. So, uh, so if I say something I've been saying a whole bunch of times, just, just nod your head and smile, and next time bring rotten tomatoes and I'll learn the lesson. But, um, but Ezekiel really has three parts to it. In the first, uh, well, I guess three parts. Um, the first 24 chapters are doom against Israel. So the, the, the book starts with chapters one through three of a vision of God's glory. He sees the Shekinah glory of God and it is overwhelming. He doesn't even know how to describe it. The language that he uses is so far out there um, that it's one of those books that you you really just, you kind of have to read a bunch of times before you figure out what he's trying to say because it's just the vision and and the the nature of it. It's really similar to the book of Revelation in that respect. There's so many visions and so many things that he's seeing that are they're just so very difficult to describe. He doesn't have really the words to use to really adequately picture what he's seeing. And then in chapter 4, he pretty much goes to doom against Israel. He's calling out the leaders of Israel. He's calling out the, the wickedness of the people. He's calling it out in all sorts of different ways. The, the elected officials, I guess elected officials, they're not really elected in that, in our day and age, they would be, but in that day, they weren't really elected. He's calling out the priest. He's calling out the rulers. He's calling out the, the peasants. He's calling out everybody. He says there's such depravity in the temple that God's glory leaves the temple. Now, this is a God who has promised that his name would be there forever, but it's gotten so bad. Worshiping in false gods directly in the temple. And this is by Israelites. This isn't by conquering nations. These are by the Israelites, the people who know better. And God's glory just ups and leaves. The kabod of God just packs his bags and moves out. And you see him railing against the injustices that are going on. This isn't the injustice of someone who just uh, sees makes up some sort of injustice that they quote unquote see happening and, and, and they, and they talk about it and talk about it and talk about it until somebody, uh, uh, does something to alleviate their feelings. This is actual injustice. This is the oppression of poor. This is the, 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 the murdering of people. This is the judges taking bribes to call cases a particular way. This is real injustice. And Ezekiel says, your days are up. And in chapter 25, he switches. He, he starts looking at the nations all around them. He looks at, he looks at Edom. He looks at Moab. He looks at Syria. He looks at Philistia. He looks at all these nations that are around Israel. He looks at Egypt. He even looks at Babylon. Declaring the judgment of God upon those peoples. And then in chapter 20, or 33, something happens. We've, we've already read through it. 
Ezekiel repeats his calling as a watchman. And then he describes when he heard that Jerusalem fell. He gets the word from the sentry who has run his course from Jerusalem to where he is in Babylon. And it said, God's city has fallen. We knew it was coming. Now the day hits. And then it's almost as if Ezekiel says, all right, finally, God's judgment has happened on Israel. I can finally tell you the good part. Because in chapter 34, he talks about the fact that you have had bad shepherds, but no more. Because the good shepherd He's taking charge. He's going to get rid of the bad shepherds and he's going to take over. He's going to make a covenant of peace with Israel. We talked about that two weeks ago. A beautiful passage showing God's outpouring love, how he protects them and provides for them for the sake of his name. Tonight, we look at chapter 35. It's 15 verses in chapter 35. So we're going to cover the whole chapter. And I'm titling this How to Be Judged because he's talking specifically about the judgment of a people. Look with me in Ezekiel chapter 35. We're going to read just the first four verses. Ezekiel 35, 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, remember, when you've seen God's glory... There's no other way to describe yourself than a mere human. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Mount Seir, just so you know, is the highest point in the nation of Edom. So, uh, a little bit of background. There are these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob are the people of Israel. The descendants of Esau are the people of Edom. And so you have this people of Edom over here, with Mount Seir as their highest point, and God tells Ezekiel, prophesy against that mountain. What does he say? Verse 3. And say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we have in this chapter a prophecy against Edom. So why is God prophesying against Edom? Why is it that God has turned against this group of people? What has Edom done to deserve the desolation, the laying waste that God is going to do to it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Isn't that amazing how the preacher always knows the question? In this chapter... God identifies three basic crimes. Now, normally I don't like to preach three points in a poem kind of sermons, you know, where it always fits that exact corner thing. But this is kind of a three-point sermon, okay? Because there's three crimes Edom does, and to each crime, God gives a specific response. And so let's look at the crimes in order. The first crime is in verse 5. Because, okay, so why is God doing what he's doing? Because you cherish perpetual enmity 
and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Edom's first crime. This is an interesting um, interesting wording that he uses here in the ESV. It says he cherished perpetual enmity. In um, the NASB, it reads slightly differently. It says, because you have had everlasting enmity. The, the Hebrew is almost literally because he was to you a hostility to eternity. Here's what's happened. Have you ever seen sworn enemies? You ever see two people that just will not get along? No matter what you do, they're not going to get along. And so this person swears against that. Anything that person is for, I'm against. I don't care what it is. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys. The families are fighting over each other. They probably don't even know what started it. They don't, they probably don't know how long it's been going on. All they know is that all their lives, those people have been terrible. And so we hate them. That's what it's like between Israel and Edom. If you go back to Jacob and Esau, do you remember? Those two were fighting in the womb. They come out. Jacob literally means he grasped the hill because when they were born, Esau came out first and Jacob's hand was on Esau's heel. Like they're wrestling to be the first one out. Boy, you know this is going to be a great brotherly love between these two, right? I can't imagine what it's like for two brothers to fight all the time. I, I've, I've never seen that happen before. Um, they're bitter, sworn enemies to hold a grudge to the grave. That's what it's like between Edom and Israel. That's what it's like. They're constantly battling each other. They're looking for any chance to one-up the other. And in fact, not only that, not only have, did you, have you held this grudge, and you're continuing to hold the grudge, you're doing nothing about the grudge. You're not trying to reach out. You're not trying to make amends. You're not trying to find some sort of peace treaty between you two. You're looking for every chance you get to get them worse than they've gotten you. That's the kind of the the kind of thing here. I have a friend, and I'm not okay. Y'all know I don't root for Alabama or Auburn. Okay, I have a friend who's an Alabama fan, and he says he wants Auburn to lose every single game in the last seconds. Not just not just lose. He wants them to get heartbroken every single game they play. He wants them to lose in the final seconds to a game-winning field goal or a touchdown drive or whatever. He wants them to think they're going to win and at the end lose until they play Alabama and then he wants it to be a complete blowout. He wants no chance whatsoever in that game. I mean, that's rough. Do you? Are you the same way? I, I take it. <laughs> He's bad. He's bad. Okay. You're the man right now. Um, I don't care one way or the other. I really don't. Um, I think it's funny to watch y'all argue over it, actually. <laughs> and sometimes I'll stoke the fire one way or the other. I'll, t- I'll talk about the, the Auburn Library uh, fire that burned both coloring books and 
you know, I'll talk about both sides. I don't, I don't, I make fun of both, uh, cause it's just really funny to watch y'all. But, um, that, that's a real hatred right there. That's a real hatred. I had two campus ministers. One was an Alabama guy. He grew up in Tuscaloosa County. So he went to Alabama. Everything is Alabama. The other, um, grew up in Smith Station, which isn't too, too far from Auburn. So he was a big Auburn guy. Auburn household, went to Auburn. Ended up as a campus minister in Auburn for a while um, before God moved their family onto the mission field. But what's amazing to me is those two guys, die-hard fans both ways, found a way to not let that ruin their friendship. You know what they did? They didn't talk about Alabama and Auburn sports to each other. They could talk about, they could talk about Auburn's game with Tennessee or Alabama's game with Georgia. That was fine. But when it came to the Iron Bowl, neither one of them said a word. That's how, that's how they got through. That's how they maintained a friendship. But the fact is, this rivalry between Edom and Israel is so great that they hate each other to the bone and want to see the other destroyed. So much so that Edom gave them over to the sword. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the sword. This is not just, this is not just sat back and said, well, I'm, I'm not going to help you, sorry. You, you get, you're in this mess. It's all you. It's not what they were doing. What they were doing was much more sinister. Hey, here's an Israelite over here. Get him, get him, get him. <laughs> I mean, giving him up. The, the gave over is a causative noun. They made sure Israelites died. They didn't just sit back in complacency. They didn't just neglect to do their duty of helping someone in need. They made sure the calamity came upon more and more Israelites. They refused to provide refuge to a people that was being attacked, being overwhelmed by their enemy. And not just the people. Their own brothers. This isn't just neglect. The verb, by the way, the basic meaning of the word is to spill out, to hurl down. They made sure Israel fell bad. Amos identifies this. Amos chapter 1 verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment. He does this with several different people groups. I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Amos says that's why Edom is getting punished. Now this is Amos. Amos prophesied a couple hundred years, at least 140 years, maybe even more before the fall of Jerusalem. And he, he's saying the same problem. This is a long-standing issue. The book of Obadiah, if you'll remember, 
It's a prophecy against Edom. Shortest book of the Old Testament. Only one chapter book in the Old Testament. It's a prophecy against Edom for these very same reasons. They turn their back on the brothers in the time of need. And so God's retribution to them, verse 6, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, and he lives, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you, because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. What Edom sought to bring upon Israel will now be turned upon him. Verse 7, I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go. I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and all your ravine, those slain with the sword shall fall. The sword that Edom sought for Israel will fill Edom with death and destruction. It's not just going to hit over there. It's going to come close to home too. The refuge that they seek on the mountain will not be a refuge for them. Because in the same way that they refused refuge for Israel, they will not find refuge in their day of need. Verse 9, And I will make you a perpetual desolation. You want a perpetual enmity with Israel? I will make you a perpetual desolation. And your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Do you get the picture here? That's just their first crime. That's just the first one. There's two more to go. Second crime, verse 10. Because you said, again, why am I making you desolate? First, because you turned your back on your brother in his need. Second, because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will take possession of them. Although the Lord was there, Edom was seeking to take possession of Israel's land. But do you notice that last part? Although the Lord was there? I thought God abandoned Israel. I thought God packed his bags and moved out. Well, he kind of did in one sense. But he didn't in another. We think of God as being present when things are good and absent when things are bad. That's not really true. God's present all the time. In fact, we call God omnipresent. That means always present. He's present in the good. He's present in the bad. Sometimes He is present to bless. When things are going good, when you're honoring Him with your life and the fruits of that honoring God are showing That is a presence to bless. And boy, we love it when God is present to bless. But lest we forget, God can also be present to curse. And when God is in Israel at this point, He is present to curse them. Not because He hates them, but because He loves them. And He knows that the only way to get rid of the sin is to deal with it. You can't get rid of the sin problem by skirting around it. You can't get rid of the sin problem by calling it something different. You can't get rid of the sin problem by closing your eyes and acting like it's not there. The only way to get rid of sin is to face it head on. To deal with the punishment directly. Somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody has to die 
to deal with that sin. Now thank God, Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. He took it on head first. He didn't run away. He didn't cower. He didn't call it something different. He didn't pretend it wasn't there. He took it on head on on the cross, bore the weight of it on His shoulders, and died a death that we deserved. And because of that, we don't have to pay the price. Now, we, we suffer the consequences, but that's a very different thing. We don't have to pay the ultimate price because Jesus paid it all. But Edom looks at Israel's property, looks at those cities and say, ha ha, these are for us now. They're going to be ours. These two countries, the Israel Kingdom of Israel to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south, they're going to be ours. Land flowing with milk and honey, here we come. You know, Edom is, is doesn't have very much milk and honey. There's not much pasture land. It's, it's pretty much mountains. Doesn't mean there's nothing that lives there. There are some things. But it's not that good. And they say, well, this must be ours now. They forgot God's still there. They, they thought God had left. Because in any other culture, the gods whom you worship, when you are, when you are down and out, your God has abandoned you. But not Israel's God. He may have been present to curse, but he was still present. And through his judgment, he would bless Israel in ways that they could not even believe. But right now, i got to deal with the sin first. And he's there. He has not utterly forsaken Israel, nor has he utterly forsaken us, by the way. No matter how bad or, or how much punishment you may be going through, no matter how much you may think God has abandoned you in your sin, he has not abandoned you. Now, he may not be present to bless. He may be bringing punishment. But that does not mean that he's flown the coop. My God doesn't fly the coop. So what, what's God going to do? Verse 11. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God. What? That sounds familiar. Where have I heard that? <laughs> That's verse 6. The same, the same thing that predicates his first act of judgment on Edom predicates this one too. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, he's making a promise, as surely as I am alive before you today, and he is alive, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them, and I will make myself known to them when I judge you. He says, you want to be angry? You want to hate Israel? Fine. Be my guest. It's all yours. Careful what you wish for. God knows that the punishment oftentimes needs to fit the crime. And sometimes that happens through the crime. You ever heard the phrase, hatred hates the hater more than the hated? I saw one, I can't remember exactly how it was put. Um, but basically, hatred is a substance that eats away the thing that holds it. So 
sometimes God just punishes our bad choices by letting them play out. It's the kid who <laughs> is doing something they shouldn't be doing and you try to warn them and they keep doing it anyway and you finally just say, all right, well, learn your own way. Go ahead, stick that key in that light socket. Some of you are like, you don't let your kids do that. <laughs> no, I don't let them stick keys in light sockets. But sometimes I do let them learn the hard way. Because they're knuckleheads. And that's the way they learn. I'm, I'm being completely serious here. I'm a knucklehead. How do you think I learned not to put a key in a light socket? I wasn't smart enough to watch some other kid do it. No, I, I was the experimenter. I was the scientist. And boy, I got my master's in electrical engineering that day. I learned, I learned, yeah. True story. I actually did that. Y'all, sometimes God just says, go ahead, have at it. Because He knows. Look, look, God, God doesn't want us to suffer. But sometimes a little bit of suffering will do us good. Sometimes we suffer because of our sin. We learn better. That whole point of the exile was to help them learn better. You can't follow other gods. To this day, you talk to a devout Jew and you even suggest that there's more than one God, they won't have it. They learn their lesson. God says, I'm just going to let it play out just exactly as you, you want it. By the way, there's something else. And you shall know that I'm the Lord. That's the end of that. I'm going to come back to verse 12 in a minute here. There we go. Um, sometimes God uses this. And it's his way of not only, not only teaching you what you're doing wrong, but teaching other people too. You ever noticed how sometimes you look at someone else making a mistake and you realize, boy, I, I don't need to do that. Like seeing another kid put their key, put a key in a light socket. You realize, oh, I don't want my hair to stand up. That's kind of scary. I don't want that. I've seen what someone else has done and I don't want to make the same mistake. I had an aunt who started drinking. Oh, beer is fine. Ain't going to bother anything. Before we knew it, she wasn't just drinking beer. She started doing drugs. I don't know if she's recovered or not. I don't know. I, I wish I, I wish I had a good ending to the story, but I hated the smell of cigarette smoke in her house and the smell of the beer that she was drinking. I decided that's not the route I'm going to take. I was at least smart enough for that. But sometimes God uses your punishment to warn somebody else. And sometimes 
if you're smart, you'll learn from somebody else and not make the same mistake yourself. Edom's third crime. Tony, we come back to verse 12. Verse 12, um, I really, really think the guy that numbered these verses messed up on verse 12 <laughs> because the thought ends, a whole new paragraph begins, and you're still in verse 12. So if you've got one of those that has one verse on every line, just know that there's a whole new section starting right there after they will know that I'm the Lord. Here's that the second part of verse 12. Come on. There we go. Okay, sorry. You shall know that I'm the Lord. I have heard all the revilings. This time, instead of saying as surely as I live, he just goes straight into it. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate. They are given to us to devour. Verse verse 13. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. You know, sometimes your kids say something and you're like, I heard that! <laughs> that's, that's, that's what that reminds me of. Don't think that I'm deaf, that I don't know what you're saying, because I know exactly what you're saying. Their third crime is that they reviled Israel but they also reviled Israel's God. They claimed ultimate victory over their perennial foes, and then they they not only did that, but they magnified themselves against God. They made themselves much bigger, as though God of Israel had been defeated. He's, He's no more. He's run away like the rest of them. And so they puffed out their chest in pride. You really want to know what this story is? This story of Edom and Israel? It's a story of ungiven forgiveness. Let me, let me, Esau, Esau's descendants had held this grudge for so long against the people of Israel. They'd probably forgotten what the grudge was about in the first place. Not only that, here's the strange part. Esau didn't even hold the grudge against Jacob. In Genesis chapter 33, we're told about Jacob coming to meet his brother and he has been really, really scared about this moment because he knows, he knows what he did. He knows he took his Esau's birthright. He knows he squandered him out of the rightful rightful birthright that was supposed to be his. He knows that he took the father's blessing that was due to the oldest son. And he knows Esau. Esau's a man of the land. He's he's a man of of hunting. He'd kill you 30 different ways with his bare hands, kind of a guy. This is the guy you don't want on on bad side. You don't want to be on his bad side. There we go. This is the guy that, that, oh man, if anybody's going to hold a grudge, it's going to be Esau. He's the kind of guy that you would expect to be plotting Jacob's demise. And Jacob was afraid of that. And so he devises all these plans to try to find a way to, to soften Esau's heart so that he won't just absolutely come out and kill him as soon as he sees Jacob. And so he sends this group way ahead of him. And when they encounter Esau, they're supposed to say, all these are yours. These are all yours if you want them. He sends another group. These are all yours if you want them. 
Sends another group. These are all yours. Next to last group, sends his wife, Rachel. Or Leah, excuse me. Leah, wouldn't you love to be Leah? The, the wife that, that wasn't loved. At least that's how it felt, right? Oh no, there's another wife that's better than you. She, she, she gets to be the most protected. You're just kind of thrown out there ahead. But he, he's trying all these different ways to manipulate Esau's heart. And all for really nothing because in Genesis 33, 4, but Esau sees Jacob. Look what he does. He ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Esau didn't hold the grudge. Now we're not told how long it took Esau to get over it. But I am told he got over it. He extended forgiveness to his brother Jacob. He was willing to put down the mistakes that Jacob had made. The hurt and the pain that he had caused him. Because the relationship with his brother was more important. And in the story of Edom and Israel, you see this forgiveness being withheld. This grudge being intentionally held on to. So much so that it brings a people to desolation. Because they're unwilling to say, I forgive you. And it's their ruin. God help us not be that people. God, help us to forgive those who persecute us. To forgive those who wrong us. To forgive those who mistreat us. It's all cartoon. Jesus says, you know, someone asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Should we forgive seven? Pharisees were happy with three. He thought seven's going to be big. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. In the cartoon, someone hits his head and says, oh, not only do I have to forgive, I have to do math too? Uh. But y'all, God calls us to forgive. And you know, if you really want to, you really want to get down to it. All of this all of the issues that Esau's descendants, that Edom has with the nation of Israel, all of the problems boiled down to this unwillingness to issue forgiveness. But they don't deserve it. Who cares? It ain't for them. See, what forgiveness does is it, 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 takes, it takes the caustic out of that acid of hatred. Neutralizes it. It takes the bite out of it so that the only thing that's left is a good lesson learned. Everybody needs forgiveness. And the sooner you are willing to give it, the better off you will be. So what does God do? Because the Edomites won't forgive. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. 
It's interesting. One of the things that hatred does is it, it ruins the person who's hating because they can't enjoy anymore. They're consumed with hatred. So even long before God brings full destruction on Edom, they're already destroyed. They're already desolate because their hatred's eaten them alive. While the whole earth rejoices, will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate. Just as you were rejoicing over the desolation of your bitter enemy, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Now you know when God repeats something. That's important. Then they will know that I am the Lord. They rejoiced when Israel was judged by God, so God will bring judgment on them to the rejoicing, not just of Israel. Did you see that in verse 14? While the world rejoices. There's something I haven't pointed out yet. Something that connects everything together. You saw it at the end of verse 4. It was at the end of verse 9 too. Then it was at the beginning of verse 12. And then at the end of verse 15 too. Let me read them. Verse 4, I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 9, I will make you a perpetual desolation and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 12, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 15, he makes a small change. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You really want to know how to be judged? Oppose God in pride. Because God judges those who oppose Him in pride for the glory of His name. Throughout all of this, everything God is doing to judge Edom, to judge Israel, to judge all nations, is to bring glory to His name that all will know He is the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, help us know that You are God. Help us know the easy way. Learning from the mistakes of others. Help us not be consumed with hatred. Help us not be overtaken by a desire to see someone else fail. God, help us not magnify ourselves against you in pride. Help us not hold a grudge that will enslave us to tyranny. Help us not be like Edom. But God is the remnant of Israel who brings our sins before you, who admits our faults, who seeks your forgiveness, who trusts you 
to redeem us from the pit, from the miry clay, from the slavery to sin, to set our feet on the rock, to establish our ways, to make straight our paths. God, you are the one who is from the womb fashioned us for your will. So Father, I pray that we would do your will, that we would live up to the reason you made us, that we would forgive, that we would humble ourselves and exalt you, that we would be your people in the midst of a world that is desperate to know you and doesn't even realize it, a world that doesn't even know where it's going or where it wants to go. Father, I pray that when you judge us, that you would correct our sin so that we may never turn from you. Lord, I thank you that your son paid the price on the cross. I pray that we would continue to trust in him and that through everything we would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.